0: We're putting science in the spotlight. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Science Podcast in the Spotlight. My name is Emily Schaefer, and I am one of the hosts of the show, and this podcast was brought to you by the Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT, at Northwestern University. For this podcast, myself or the other host, Nicholas Gretton-Alvarado, interview a fellow graduate student or early career researcher in the sciences about the amazing research that they're doing in the hopes that we can get down to the foundation of why their research matters and what the rest of us should know about it and why we should care at the end of the day. Now, the dentist might not be your favorite place in the world to physically go to, but that doesn't mean that there's not some very interesting scientific concepts at work and research being done that's related to going to the dentist. So here to introduce us to the fascinating intersection of neuroscience and endodontics is Katie Lillis. Katie is a fourth year PhD candidate in the neuroscience department at UT Health San Antonio. So welcome, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. Katie, what made you want to become a scientist? Growing
1: up, I always really idolized my aunt. Uh, She is an optometrist. And so growing up, I wanted to follow in her footsteps. So when I started college at the University of Iowa, I was really determined to be an optometrist. So I started taking lots of biology, chemistry classes. I really enjoyed them. And it was actually a class that I took more as an elective that was biological psychology that really kind of kicked off my passion for neuroscience and so learning how are these chemicals in our brain contributing to our thoughts and feelings of everyday life. And from there, I took a couple more uh, psychology classes and kind of integrated them with the biology and chemistry classes I was already taking and joined a neuroscience lab at the University of Iowa where we were studying cocaine addiction um, and seeing kind of the excitement of research and everyday uh, tasks that we were doing in the lab and thinking about their broader impact really inspired me to pursue a PhD in neuroscience.
0: But now also, you're not just in neuroscience, you're also in endodontics and in these biomedical sciences. so. What brought you to this really different part of neuroscience?
1: Yeah, so it's no secret that, you know, when we think of the dentist or we think of teeth, usually the number one thing we'll think of is pain. Ouch. And it's really because our teeth are so densely innervated with our neurons that are sensing pain. And so that makes sense that of evolutionarily we need these sensors there to tell us when something's wrong if we have a cavity or an infection we need those pain sensing signals to let us know oh i shouldn't chew on that side or i need to be a little more gentle so while we wouldn't really think that there's this overlap between neuroscience and dentistry innately it kind of makes sense that our pain sensing neurons really are at play in our day-to-day lives
0: So in the research lab now, what sort of work are you doing?
1: Our lab is looking at how these pain-sensing neurons are actually playing a protective role. So like I said, they play a protective role in the sense of sending pain signals, letting us know there's an issue. But when it comes to dental infections, one of the outcomes that can happen is if the infection gets bad enough, there can be bone loss around the root of the tooth. And this can be really problematic because if this bone loss continues, you could ultimately lose the tooth, which could expose the area to further infections, which over time could potentially go systemic. So it's really problematic to have bone loss with a dental infection. And so we're looking at how exactly these pain-sensing neurons are playing a protective role in this bone loss. And it's really important because we don't have a great way to treat bone loss uh, in these dental infections. The go-to treatment is a root canal procedure. And while most of these are successful at treating the infection, sometimes we can have bone loss that occurs despite a successful endodontic intervention. So really kind of finding a new innovative way to treat this bone loss could really help prevent losing teeth or further uh, procedures down the line, like having to get additional endodontic therapy or potentially having to get a dental implant. So we're trying to protect the natural tooth if possible.
0: What sort of situations are these dental infections happening in? And is it like specific populations that are most prone to this? It sounds really extreme and scary, but I don't know if that's actually the case.
1: It's actually surprising that, especially as we age, we are more and more susceptible to these sorts of infections. One of the ways that these infections can occur is when we have cavities and we about brushing and flossing our teeth a lot to protect against cavities and what that means is we're clearing away bad bacteria that can otherwise penetrate the outer layers of our teeth and it can be really problematic if we start to have breakdown of those outer layers because then the bacteria can get inside of our teeth and that's actually where these pain sensing neurons are they're not on the outside they're on the innermost tissue of the teeth And then they can ultimately work their way through the tooth down the root, which is the part of the tooth that we don't see into the surrounding bone. And so we see a lot of inflammation. This can can be really painful. And if this infection is left untreated, then we can see bone loss in this area. And that's typically when an endodontic intervention is needed. When your dentist takes an x-ray, one of the things that they're looking for is bone loss around the root of your tooth. And if they see this, this could warrant a, a root canal procedure. And essentially what we do with the root canal procedure is make a small opening at the top of the tooth and clear out all of that soft tissue that's on the inside, that tissue that is getting infected and then clean it out really well, get rid of all the bacteria, all the parts of the infection, get it all nice and clean, fill it, and then cover it up to protect that tooth from further infections. Ultimately, we need to keep our teeth clean so that bacteria can't infect and invade to prevent these sort of infections from happening.
0: You said the gold standard of treatment for this is a root canal. But everything I've ever heard from other people, from the media about root canals, says it's awful. So is it really as bad as people say?
1: (laughs) Well, this is definitely a common misconception. The goal of the root canal is to actually treat the pain that you're already experiencing. So if you have an infection that has gotten to the point where it's excruciating, you're drinking a cold beverage and you can't get through it without this sharp, sharp pain. The root canal is actually the root canal treatment is actually designed to reverse this, to treat the problem at its core, to get rid of that infection. And you're actually getting rid of those nerves within the tooth. So by the end of the root canal, you actually shouldn't be feeling any pain at all for the most part.
0: That's good to hear. What's the downside to getting rid of nerve tissue and bone tissue during the root canal? Why is it so important to keep the natural tooth?
1: The goal of these endodontic interventions are certainly to preserve the natural tooth. This has a lot of innate machinery built in to keep the tooth nice and healthy and keep the surrounding bone and surrounding tissue healthy. Alternatively, if we do have to extract the tooth, then one potential option in the future is an implant, which isn't always an option for patients, whether it's cost-wise or whether or not the surrounding bone will accept the implant. So the first line of defense is to try to save your natural tooth that has all of the machinery that's been developed over time to help keep your teeth as well as the surrounding tissue nice and healthy.
0: And what's going on with your neurons during all of this?
1: So our work is focused more on the mechanisms of how these neurons are protecting against bone loss. So we think of it as how the neurons are communicating with the cells that are building up and breaking down bone. Because there's a misconception that bone is just kind of a static tissue, that there's not a ton going on. But in reality, it's constantly overturning, it's keeping itself nice and healthy. And so there's a continuous balance of building up nice healthy bone and destroying older bone and so in healthy tissue this balance is nice and even however in conditions where there's say an infection this balance shifts and tends to favor bone breakdown and that's due to the bacteria that's infecting they're going to stimulate a big immune response. The immune response is aimed at trying to fight off the bacteria, trying to heal. But in turn, it's also activating these cells that are breaking down bone. So the goal of our research is how can we further understand the role of neurons in this condition to help shift that balance so that there isn't as much bone loss.
0: I see. So are you thinking that there's a way to then manipulate the neurons if you understand what they're supposed to be doing at any given time? What's What's the point of, of understanding the mechanism in so much detail?
1: By looking at the mechanism, we can achieve better specificity. Because we know that these neurons are sending pain signals, we don't want to just come up with a drug or a treatment that will stimulate the neuron and it'll help bone loss at the cost of also sending pain signals. So by studying the mechanisms, we can dive further into, okay, we know these neurons are helping protect against bone loss. Are they releasing something that the other cells are picking up on and, you know, the neurons are telling the cells oh we got to build up the bone or we got to stop breaking down the bone what are those factors that are being released we want to look at the mechanisms so that if we were to manipulate the neurons with the drug down the line that we can really be targeting its effects on bone loss and not be targeting some of those pain pathways
0: gotcha In terms of these mechanisms and trying to create these new pharmacological approaches, what do we already know? And what's the big question that if you were to pick one thing that you really want to figure out in the lab next, that's what you want to figure out?
1: We know that when there's a dental infection, we see an increase in the branching of these neurons. So they are actively responding to the infection. And we certainly know this from a pain perspective, but we don't really know how the neurons are interacting with the bone cells or even the immune cells. So one of the major goals of our work is to further understand the communication between these cell types. So if we could down the line, identify, say, a single factor that these neurons are releasing and it's promoting bone growth or inhibiting bone destruction that knowing that factor or factors, it's likely going to be a combination, right? Um, But that's one that we could eventually look into as a pharmaceutical uh, target.
0: For this dream drug that you're envisioning, who do you think it would be actually accessible to? What situations do you think it would be most useful in?
1: So I think a drug like this could potentially be useful, say, while someone is getting a root canal treatment, that if we can perform the root canal like normal, successfully get rid of the bacteria, but somehow include a drug during the treatment where all of this area is accessible and use that as a target to help prevent the bone loss after a successful root canal procedure after the bacteria is already cleared away if we could target it at this point to help prevent bone loss after this treatment
0: gotcha that makes sense and so I imagine in your lab, you have to have a lot of people with interesting specialties, right? So do you work with dentists and people that perform dental surgery, or is that something that you've kind of had to figure out on your own?
1: Definitely. So I have the pleasure of working with Dr. Enable Diogenes, who is a practicing endodontist, So his expertise brings in a passion for basic science. So he really has really trained me to dive deep into investigating these mechanisms. But he's also the one treating patients with this condition. So I've actually had the opportunity to shadow in an endodontic clinic and watch root canal procedures or watch procedures that are helping to alleviate these infections. And so that's really helpful from a translational standpoint that we can model this in the lab, looking at our cells, using animal models, but also seeing how it could potentially help patients in the long run. And I'm also fortunate to work with a variety of endodontists And especially as this project has been developing, it's been really helpful to hear their perspective in how these infections actually present themselves. For instance, having that clinical background, we know that there are some sex differences. These conditions sometimes present differently in men and women. Sometimes women will report having more pain with these conditions. And sometimes these infections are actually asymptomatic. Sometimes people don't know they have them until they get an x-ray. So having that clinical expertise has been really helpful in shaping these projects.
0: Wow, that's super fascinating to be able to, to tie that all into the work that you're doing. You said that you do animal work as well. Like, What stage is all of this research being done at?
1: So this is all preclinical work, and what's really powerful about how we design our experiments is that we're really tackling it from a lot of different angles. We can use cells to isolate forms of communication between, say, the neurons and specific bone cells, and that can be a very direct way to look at that, but it still doesn't exactly model what's going on in a human. So that's why we also use animal models. So in our lab, we use transgenic mice, where we can model this dental infection. And in our different transgenic mice, we have some that are actually born without these pain sensing neurons. So we can directly compare what are these pain sensing neurons doing when we look at our regular mouse versus our mouse without pain-sensing neurons. And these are really powerful tools to help us further understand how these neurons are communicating with bone cells.
0: Yeah, the concept of of transgenic animals, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast. So can you just really briefly explain what you mean and how do these mice act? Are health-wise? Are they much different than than your wild type normal ones?
1: So our transgenic mice are similar to individuals who have a genetic mutation in which they don't feel pain. So there are some conditions where humans are born with a mutation in a certain gene Um, where they can't sense pain. So putting your hand on a hot stove, whereas most people could feel that, these individuals don't feel that. So we have a similar mouse model where their genome was manipulated and we have mice that are born without these pain sensing neurons. And we're able to use that as a tool to tease apart what these neurons are doing in the context of the dental infection.
0: Do these mice feel any pain or is it a mutation that's specifically at the, the pain neurons that would be around in the mouth or around their teeth?
1: These mice have mostly
0: all of their pain-sensing neurons
1: killed off. So they do still respond to, stu- to some stimuli. We can look at how well this transgenic manipulation worked by using a couple different tests. One of which was developed by Dr. Ken Hargreaves, who was actually my mentor's mentor at UT Health San Antonio. And he came up with an apparatus where you shine a light on the bottom of a mouse's foot and you measure how long it takes for them to pull their paw away. So the idea there is that the longer they leave their paw on the surface and the light is shining at it, the less pain that they're experiencing. And so with our our wild type control mice, they'll pull, pull their paw away in a couple seconds. It's pretty quick. However, with our mice where their nociceptors are killed off, they can leave their paw on the surface for quite a long time they will pull it off eventually so we know that this intervention doesn't kill off all of the neurons but it does kill off a significant amount of them
0: wow that is so interesting It's really cool to hear that you get to test a lot of different methods in your lab to try and figure all of this out. Do you have a favorite, like something that you like to do in the lab? Like, is it the animal work? Is it the clinical stuff? Is it cells or something else entirely?
1: So one of the techniques that we have been utilizing recently is RNA sequencing. So Basically, this technique allows us to look at levels of RNA for every single gene. And this is especially helpful for looking at potential targets that were never on our radar. So, of course, we have, based on the literature, come up with what some of the targets are that we think these neurons could be acting through. However, using an approach like RNA sequencing it really helps to kind of provide an unbiased view. So it gives us the opportunity to look at targets or genes that we never would have thought of in the first place. And so I'm definitely new to RNA sequencing. It's a lot of bioinformatics. There's a lot of data, but it's been really interesting to kind of look at. So if we see genes that are changing, how, What do they have in common? You know, what sort of pathways are they associated with? So it's a really powerful tool that we've been looking at in the context of this disease.
0: Katie, I'm going to ask you one final question. If me and everybody listening were to understand or remember just one thing from all the cool stuff that you've shared today, what do you want to spotlight?
1: The key takeaway I would like to give is that while root canal treatments and going to the dentist and all of this can seem really scary, we associate it with pain. While pain might be really unpleasant, those same neurons that are telling us, ouch, they are also doing their best to try and protect us against things that we can't necessarily see. These are mechanisms that we can study and potentially target in the future to come up with even better treatments for these conditions that happen so frequently.
0: So basically pain is not always a bad thing. Definitely. (laughs) Awesome. And if people are really interested in some of the stuff that you're talking about, is there a way that they can learn more or contact you?
1: Definitely. So I am on Twitter at Katie V. Lillis, K-A-T-I-E-V-L-I-L-L-I-S. Or I'm also on LinkedIn at Katie Lillis. Um, and I would be happy to further answer any more questions or front any more information.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Katie, for sharing a bit more about your work. This was really, really interesting stuff. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone who's listening to this episode. Thank you for tuning in. I want to remind all of you whether or not this is the, you know, whether this is the first episode you've listened to or you're a regular listener, all the wonderful things you can do like rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the podcast. It really does make a big difference in trying to get all of these episodes out to a wider audience who can appreciate this really cool science, and so if you want to connect with the podcast more on social media, you can do so on Twitter is probably the main place. Our handle is at Spotlight the Pod, and this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or Spot. And you can learn more about Spot at our website spot.northwestern.edu, or also on Twitter. Our handle is at SpotForceNu. Thank you.